Julie, my voice is back. Yay! You may have noticed that last week we had a little bit of a Greatest Hits <laughs> rerun. Yes. We would have loved to have a new episode. I couldn't speak. I had no voice. Mm-mm. It was our first time experiencing that as a podcast duo, but when you have an audio-based podcast, it is helpful to be able to talk. So thank you for hanging in there. We got two new fresh things this week. Yes. So I'm excited. And I, this one, this one, I've been super excited about the topic I have tonight, and I had it ready to go, mm-hmm. and I've had to sit on it. So everybody gets to wait with bated breath with me. Excellent. We haven't dedicated an episode to sickle cell disease to date. Okay. But recently there was a recommendation to the FDA to approve a cure for the disease using gene editing. More specifically, using CRISPR. Okay. Ooh. Sickle cell, as you know, is a genetic condition. It can have devastating consequences, and historically, the only treatments available were really for the symptoms. Like, I feel worse, so I get symptomatic treatment. If I can't breathe, I get oxygen. If I'm having pain, I get pain medication, but nothing necessarily to make it so I don't have sickle cell disease. In this case, we are curing a genetic condition, and I think that's a pretty huge deal. I think even further... A cure involving gene editing is a gigantic deal. Yeah. Huge deal. Absolutely. I reached out to um, Dr. Shivi Jane, who is a hematologist at Rush who treats sickle cell patients, and I asked for her kind of like reactions to this. It's one of those ones where I don't do this for a living, and so it's like, this seems like a big deal. Is this really a big deal? You do this all the time. Um, And so off the bat, she said she was really excited about the announcement as a possible curative treatment for her patients, Um, and she met my like uh, excitement with her excitement. So I think this is a big deal. Today we're going to review the treatment. We're going to talk about the technology behind it. We're going to talk about the possible risks and benefits. And then we're also going to talk about the next steps in regards to the recommendation to the FDA. And then even bigger from my standpoint, what this means for genetic diseases overall. Like, is this a medical revolution? I mean, it sounds like it. I don't feel like this garnered the news the way that I would have expected it. Had you heard about this? No. I I mean, like, I think I'm aware of CRISPR. CRISPR is the actor that played George McFly in Back to the Future, right? He's real creepy and weird. (laughs) <laughs> oh wait that's crispin glover it's a different thing than that right <laughs> oh bring in your a-game post thanksgiving <laughs> she's ready no in all seriousness this is very exciting and it's just so cool to see these things actually happening in practice and yeah i'm 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 in well i'm excited because it, it sounds like you you hadn't heard about this i'm hoping that maybe people hadn't heard about this and i do think people have heard of crisper but either way mm-hmm. ydf has you covered let's do this Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Well, Julie, you led me into this perfectly. Have you ever heard of CRISPR? Uh, Yes. In very... Not the one in Back to the Future, <laughs> the actual CRISPR that I'm talking not, about, all capitals. Not Crispin Glover. I don't know what CRISPR stands for, but I know that it is. Um, it has to do with with gene therapy and changing genes. Is that right? Yes. Mm. So CRISPR, C R I S P R, mm-hmm. short for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Ooh. Put that on a T-shirt. I know a long palindrome. It's, go hang a salami, I'm a lasagna hog. (laughs) And that is why you tune into YDF. (laughs) 
please continue with actual education. I just materials. love it. everybody. Everybody's going to get this great education from me, and at the end, they're going to be like, "I remember that really long palindrome that Julie brought for us." <laughs> it's a good one. So yeah, CRISPR is a technology that research scientists use to selectively modify the DNA of living organisms. It's a revolutionary technology. It garnered a lot of attention when it first came out. It probably has died down a little bit just because it's been out for a while, and there hasn't been a huge, like, newsworthy thing since it came out. But the creators of this were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2020. And I think the analog here for me is kind of like all the hub that AI is getting right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those ones where like it's revolutionary. There's amazing possibilities, all the things we can do. But there's also concerns of like, are we going to be cloning right. shit? Yes. And like, are people going to be like, what if we genetically modify something and the whole world changes? Yeah. You know, that uh, if you go back and you step on a weed and the whole world was different because of that. Butterfly so, effect again. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think the analogy to AI seems to fit here. Until now, it's really been primarily used in food and farming. So examples from Wikipedia include probiotic cultures for yogurt, Mm -hmm. crops um, that you can enhance your yield, you can change it for drought tolerance, nutritional value, and then there was modifying yeast to make biofuels. So basically, we've been using it not necessarily in healthcare as much as we've been using it maybe in in agriculture. Um, But this would be the first approval for real-world use of the technology in healthcare. And I think that's a huge, huge effing deal to me. Absolutely. I mean, I can't underscore that enough. It absolutely is. And I feel like we will listen to this episode years from now, and it'll be like standard norm kind of thing. And it'll be like, remember when we were surprised by gene therapy? I The ramifications here are, yeah. are amazing. And I think at the end, we're going to come back and kind of circle back to that. Because I think what for me, this story really brought out was like, this is great for sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. But this may be the start of like a huge revolution. And I think we should talk about it. So can I, I'm going to orient everybody to sickle cell disease. We haven't done an episode on that before. Um, What's your experience been with sickle cell patients? Have you had to treat them? I mean, as a physician, right? Like, um, I think the main times I ever treated anybody with sickle cell disease specifically was when I was like a resident in the hospital and you would treat people coming in with like sickle cell crises. And I think you'll get into like what that means. So we don't have to touch on that just now. But um, also, we as sports medicine physicians, it's um, part of our screening process, usually in our pre participation physical examination to screen, especially in in, like, for me, I take care of an NCAA collegiate athletics school. And we screen um, their athletes for sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. And I'm sure you'll get into that too, the differences between the two and how there may be implications um, if if somebody screens positive for this genetic disorder for having the trait of it, which is a more mild manifestation versus a disease, um, I, I'm sure you'll go into that too. <laughs> but yeah, and then um, I've had a few athletes over the years that have had sickle cell trait plus minus some other hemoglobinopathies, which is I'm sure what you'll talk about as well. I'm just going to shut up and let you start talking. <laughs> this is great. You're doing the objective slides of the PowerPoint. Excellent. That's fantastic. The objectives of where we're going. But I think what you've you've laid out for everybody is that it's important to know if somebody has this. Right. It changes your treatment and your understanding of them as a human being completely. Mm-hmm. And they're going to potentially have different medical problems, be at risk for different things, and potentially have significant consequences. And, and so we test for sickle cell disease as a genetic condition. Mm-hmm. Sickle cell disease is caused by genetic defect that produces an abnormal form of the protein hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, hemoglobin is in red blood cells. It's what delivers oxygens. Also just oxygen, <laughs> not even the plural oxygens. version. Yeah. There are more than one. One oxygen. <laughs> O2, baby. Yeah, right. O3 if you want to get up in that ozone. (laughs) 
So red blood cells need hemoglobin to deliver oxygen to the body. And when you have sickle cell, the red blood cells become misshapen. I think sometimes from medical school or if you were even in, you know, like high school biology, you remember the images of what a sickled shape looked like. A normal red blood cell, I always think of like Bialis or like flotation inner tubes that have something like in between it, (laughs) you know, something filled in the middle. That's kind of like what a normal blood cell looks like. Mm -hmm. And these are very flexible when they get like pushed through. Think about the inflatable inner tube. When you push them into something that's narrow, it can kind of like change its shape and get there. Mm -hmm. So like our capillaries are very, very small and they have to get through there to deliver oxygen. Sickled cell. Do you know, uh, do you have an analogy that you can think of what the sickle cell shape looks like? Uh, Like a sickle. Right? Yeah, I think it looks like a banana. Oh, like a banana, yeah. But like a, yeah. yeah but... Or like or like a half moon. Yeah. Correct. So that's what they look like. They're jagged cells and they're very inflexible. Mm-hmm. So they cannot fit through things very easily and even worse they can clump and get stuck together almost like puzzle pieces. Yeah. And when they get clumped and stuck, it causes consequences. And so that's why this is a bad disease. Okay. In addition, patients with sickle cell disease have at a baseline a number of cells that are sickled. However, there are certain triggers that can lead to more sickling and therefore lead to worse of these clogging and thus attacks of things like intense pain Mm -hmm. and damage to vital organs. And some of these triggers include dehydration. So I know especially with all of our patients who have sickle cell trait and disease who are in the sports world, we tell them they have to hydrate like crazy. And most of them know that from a young age once they were diagnosed. Illnesses, so viral illnesses or or anything where you get a cold or or whatnot can certainly change it. Lower oxygen level Mm -hmm. at at elevation. So going up to like Denver and changing uh, elevation would decrease your ability to have as much oxygen and therefore can lead to more sickling. Um, The pathology here is that the blocked blood flow through the body can lead to serious problems, including stroke, eye problems, infections, and episodes of pain called pain crises. And that's what you were describing before is Mm -hmm. sickle cell crises are frequently patients coming in and just having severe pain throughout their body because these clumps of cells are getting stuck. It's almost like having pulmonary emboli throughout your body. Um, And any uh, people are relatively familiar with that, but it can be very, very painful. Um, as I mentioned, because these sickle cells cannot change shape very easily, they also tend to burst apart. So normal red blood cells live about 90 to 120 days. Julie hammered that home on our, our episode previously where she quizzed me on how long and then I was wrong. And then she told everybody it was 90 to 120 days, Mm -hmm. but that's a normal, one of those inner tube looking blood cells. Sickle cells last only about 10 to 20 days. Um, and the body is always making new red blood cells to replace the old cells. However, in sickle cell disease, the body, the body may have trouble keeping up with how fast the cells are being destroyed because of how quickly the turnover. Is. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a machine that's constantly in production. It's a, a factory that needs so much supplies because it's having to put out like crazy. Like it's Black Friday every single day uh, um, in, in the body. So the, because of this, the number of red blood cells is usually lower in people with sickle cell disease than in the average person. So we're painting a picture here of what it's like to have sickle cell disease. Um, by some accounts, patients with sickle cell disease die 20 years prematurely compared to non-sickle cell disease patients. Mm-hmm. So it can significantly affect your life expectancy, which mm-hmm. is a big deal. There's about there's more than 100,000 people in the United States who have sickle cell disease okay. and 20 million people worldwide. And in the United States, most people who have sickle disease are of African ancestry and mm-hmm. identify themselves as black. And so this is where I have more data. Mm-hmm. About one in every 365 black or African-American baby born in the United States with has sickle cell disease okay many uh many people in addition come from hispanic southern european middle eastern or asian indian backgrounds and can have sickle cell disease but this is far less prominent than the black or african-american 
um, population. And then you talked about trait. Mm -hmm. So about one in 13 black or African-American babies are born with sickle cell trait. Okay. So just to orient again, one in every 365 babies have sickle cell disease, black or African-American babies, Mm -hmm. and one in 13 have sickle cell trait. So it's very, very common to have this trait. And then if you think about your Mendelian genetics, right, if you you take two people that have trait, they have the potential to create disease, right? Each one has two genes, Mm -hmm. you pass down one, there is a 25% chance you're passing down both of them and creating sickle cell disease. So... That's the genetic background for this. Does that make sense? It sure does. Okay. All right. Um, Most people with sickle cell trait experience no symptoms or lead normal lives. There's been instances where people who have sickle cell trait do get symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I think that emphasizes here that this is a little bit of a spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? Some people can have very severe sickle cell disease. Some people can have sickle cell trait. Some people can have sickle cell trait with symptoms that happen much more easily. And it's all based on how much sickling happens. Okay. But there was a famous example of Ryan Clark, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he went to Denver to play the Broncos Mm -hmm. and had a sickle cell crisis. Um, And he had sickle cell trait. Um, But so he was never allowed to play in Denver again. So anytime the Steelers went to Denver, he didn't play. And the risk there was splenic injury, Mm -hmm. right? Because he... plays a contact sport and he's got the the sickle cell crisis and therefore he could have ruptured his spleen got it um which could be life-threatening right i mean if you have uh, all these you know all these bananas blood cells that are that are now collecting in your spleen and causing it to swell and be fragile and then you get hit in the side and your spleen bursts i mean that could kill you you could bleed internally and die so these are not benign conditions sometimes so right so it emphasizes that even knowing you or the person you're treating has sickle cell trait is an important yeah. thing, whether for family planning or if you play a contact sport or whatnot. Sure. Um, all right. As I mentioned before, to date, most of the treatments are for symptoms. So medications can be given to decrease like the frequency of crises, but can't prevent them. And then other medications can be given IV during crises to decrease pain and decrease sickling. So there are some medications that actually exist that during a sickle cell crisis can lead to less sickling of the blood cells, which is causing the problem. But you can't necessarily take that medication on a regular basis to prevent it from happening overall. And then the only cure to this point has been a bone marrow transplant. Mm. And I was looking into this, and so I asked Dr. Jane about this, and she told me that a bone marrow transplant is effective. It has been a cure in the past, but it's not a great option because there's a ton of challenges to donor availability. Mm -hmm. There's significant amounts of treatment toxicity when people do these bone marrow transplants. And then the costs uh, to the patient when they go through these is, like, exceptionally high. So an incredibly uh, limited amount of patients ever go through these bone marrow transplants to be cured of this. Yeah, you think of bone marrow transplants, the first thing I think of is, like, young people with leukemia, right? And and right. how sick and how much you have to suppress their immune system so that they can accept someone else's bone marrow. I mean, the concept of getting a transplant from anybody is the idea, okay, how do we make your body not reject this new stuff that's coming in? And it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong here and Dr. Jane would be able to tell me better, but you know, your bone marrow, your, your, your basically building blocks of your blood cells seem like something that you your immune system would attack if they saw it as a foreign thing, you know? And so it just seems like um, a very difficult and kind of extreme treatment protocol that I think, yeah, maybe some people would just just as soon just try to live with their sickle cell disease. Right. Rather yeah. than so to go, go through, through this... what you just described, yeah. 
you'd probably have to have pretty severe consequences of your sickle cell. These are people having crises all the time. They're in the hospital all the time. They're getting severe infections. And you're sort of sitting like, I can't, you know, this person's not going to live like this. this But the vast majority of that, those uh, uh, number that I talked about, the Mm 100,000, and and then the rate within the the Black and African-American community don't have that severe. And so would you go through that treatment to then deal with that to potentially decrease the symptoms that you weren't having that frequently. So yes, you've painted a good picture on that. So, all right. I think everybody is a sickle cell disease expert at this point. Um, but I did want to give a good background on that before we jumped into the treatment. Cause I think again, sickle cell disease is a very, very important thing for people to understand. Mm-hmm. There's many people around you who are living with it. And I think also understanding kind of the concept of where we're coming from to this new treatment is the way to kind of wrap your head around how does this affect other types of things that we may be able to treat in the future? Yeah. So the new treatment is called Exacel. I'll spell it E-X-A hyphen C-E-L. It's by Vertex Pharmaceuticals and then CRISPR Therapeutics, which are both based in Boston. Mm-hmm. I'm going to describe the procedure. Um, doctors remove cells from each patient's bone marrow. So there is a bone marrow aspirate with this. Okay. But instead of a transplant, they then take that bone marrow, edit the BCL11A gene with CRISPR, and then infuse billions of the modified cells back into the patients. So it's not a transplant, it's from you, and it has edited genes using CRISPR. So real quick, say I'm the one with sickle cell disease. So you, Jeremy, if you're the, if you're Crispin Glover, um, you take my bone marrow, correct? my like not normal bone marrow, and you take it out of me and you make the, this gene deletion and you know, like addition, subtraction, you, you make a whole bunch of good bone marrow cells and then you stick that back in my bone marrow. Yes. Okay. There's no, there's no need for an exogenous. There's not, there's no need for some other person. It's not like you'd get it from my sister. You, you don't need anybody else's bone marrow, but my own sickle cell bone marrow. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. So the edited cells produce a form of hemoglobin known as fetal hemoglobin, mm-hmm. going back to your days of learning about all yes. the different types of hemoglobins. And so this restores normal red blood cell function. Okay. The other thing that's really cool about this is it's a one-time procedure. You never have so to do this it is ever not again? Something you, no. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> so they did a study. It Obviously, in these early... First of all, this is a pretty significant treatment. Um, you're not going to have... 30,000 people in this trial. Sure. They did 30 patients. Okay. But the treatment resolved the severe pain crises for at least 18 months of the 20, of 29 of the 30 subjects, 96.7%. And these were people, the people who were in this study were severe. These people were having pain crises all the time. Hence, they were in this study in the first place. So 29 out of the 30 people did not have a single severe pain crisis for 18 months. That's insane. I remember, I mean, most of the folks that we treated, that I treated like as a resident or as a medical student, uh, were on the pediatrics floor that had, that were coming in for pain crises. And they were some of the sickest people I remember taking care of. And, and they were young and it was sad and awful. And they were like your frequent flyers that you would see all the time. And you just felt for them because they were, they were just stuck with this. And and all we could do was support them with like, yeah, hydration and pain medications and just like help them put up with these horrible crises that they would go through over and over and over again. And it, yeah, like 
that's the image that pops in my head when you're talking mm-hmm. about this and how amazing to be like, guess what? Maybe you don't have to do that ever again is pretty right. amazing. So it the other thing from the study is that they didn't really find any serious short-term safety concerns. And I emphasize the word short-term because sure. obviously this has not been going on for decades of, of evaluation. And we'll get into that in a little later, but mm-hmm. they didn't find really any safety concerns. So you, you have 29 out of 30 success and no sor- serious short-term safety concerns, which is a home run. Oh, yeah. An absolute home run. So one concern, um, can you guess what one of the biggest concerns is? We talk about this a lot on this podcast. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, money. It, yeah, the funding. Where is the funding coming from and is there more? <laughs> How much does it cost yeah. to get the therapy? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So this can cost as much as $2 million per patient. Oh, Dios mio. Yikes. So, but it's interesting because if you look at the analyses, it still may be cost effective because these patients who are getting it right. are in the hospital frequently. All the time, yeah. The cost to care for these patients and the cost that, that whether the insurance companies or you know uh, government-based insurance mm-hmm. or even the families themselves are picking up over the lifetime of this condition right. can be well over $2 million. Sure. So I'm yeah. not sure how it's going to be paid for, but if you start to look at it, like should insurance companies start to chip in and pay for it, or is there a way to make it accessible? Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's a cost-effective decision. And this still may be cost-effective if you yeah. are using the like Those. the criteria for the people who are being given this. So right. not somebody who has one pain crisis every five years. Right. People that are coming in every couple of months or something right and having sure. to be in the hospital for multiple days and um and ha- maybe needing different surgeries or other in, you know invasive treatments for this problem just to maintain life and their quality of life and to extend their lives it's yeah i mm, interesting can't we yeah. get like what's like the mario lopez version of this that you can buy it yeah, right. When's that How one many episodes out? has Mario Lopez come up on on, on this podcast? <laughs> That's my joke. The running joke. The knockoff. So, CRISPR. We've talked on the podcast before about things that were recommended to the FDA. I think a lot of times that's come up with like COVID-based things. Sure. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. But a lot of times when the recommendation has made to the FDA from these like recommendation committees, the FDA usually listens. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, because of the high stakes of approving basically a brand new kind of technology to treat people for the first time, the FDA asked the advisors to focus on whether sufficient research had been done to spot, quote, off-target effects of the treatment. So basically unintended editing errors that miss their mark in the DNA and that could potentially cause long-term health problems. I think this is the biggest unanswered question, Right. right? We've always talked about this with CRISPR. Like, okay, we know we did the good thing for the gene, but did that change the expression of other genes that could then lead to other problems down the road? And that's what the FDA has asked them to look into. Yeah. And that needs more time and more research and more money. Right. I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah. What if the trade-off of you not having sickle cell disease is that you get leukemia in five years? I don't know. I made that up. That probably has nothing to do with anything, but scary, you know, and and requires just more and more study. Um, yeah. Well, I think a lot of it will come down to the criteria of who will be eligible for this, because sure. it's going to be like, maybe this is a last resort type of situation. And so maybe we don't have the long-term studies, but also like, what are the other options at this point? So I asked Dr. Jane, um, are you concerned about the treatment at all? I thought this was a really important question. Like, 
are what are your concerns? And she said, like any new treatment, she would like to see the long term outcomes in terms of safety and e- efficacy. Um, she also expressed concerns about access to the treatment, both by availability and cost. So stuff we've already reflected and sure. I think a relatively kind of like boxed answer from a doctor. Like, I'd like to see long term outcomes. I want to make sure yeah. it's safe for people. I want to make sure it's available and the cost effective. Um, one thing she did bring up that I thought was a great point is the potential impact on the mental and emotional well-being of these patients. Yeah. So a sickle cell disease cure is not only curing the physical ramifications of the condition. She mentioned that it also um, would cure the mental and emotional burden of the disease. Um, the disease generally dictates almost everything that the patient does, mm-hmm. kind of like what we described for like celiac disease. Like yep. every moment of your day is dictated by like, I have to look out for this or I don't know what's going to happen or I can't be around that. I can't go here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the load that could be removed with a cure is hard to really measure slash imagine. Yeah, I feel like I have this conversation with um, patients that I see with osteoarthritis, right? And um, what's what's terribly debilitating about having chronic diseases, I mean, I would expect, is the unpredictability. And if you have something like sickle cell disease, which by nature is pretty unpredictable, I mean, there are certain things that you can do and avoid, like, you know, being at altitude or... Um, maintaining hydration to some like you can't really control how much you get sick if you have a fever if you have you know all these other little factors that could come into play that could throw you into some type of sickle cell crisis and how how debilitating psychologically and emotionally that must be to not have some degree of control or predictability of how you're going to feel and what your day is going to be like that day like gosh the 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 psychological ramifications um uh, yeah, I, that's a that's a great thing that she touched on because that's absolutely huge and just so important to to address. Well, it doesn't even include the caregiver and the family and yeah. everybody else that's involved in this. That that it basically becomes the center point of of the life, right? I mean, right. your whole life revolves around sickle cell disease because somebody has sickle cell disease, and so if you remove sickle cell disease, like how many shackles does that remove? I know it's you're not incredible. always, yeah. You're not always waiting for that shoe to drop of like, well, I feel good today, but like, uh, is this going to last? And is there going to be, am I going to get thrown some type of curveball that's going to make me really, really sick to the fact that I'm in the hospital and I can't do anything. Ugh, awful. So as I mentioned, the assessment by outside advisors typically marks the final step before the agency renders a decision, and the FDA has a December 8th deadline to act on the therapy, Mm -hmm. so we may get a decision before you know it. I mean, that's probably somewhere around like 11 or 12 days after we're releasing this Mm -hmm. episode, somewhere in there. Um, So we'll find out. Um, The approval, um, as I was alluding to and haven't uh, um, talked about yet, was this would make sickle cell patients 12 years and older with recurrent vaso-occlusive crises eligible. So basically, you have to be over 12, mm-hmm. and you have to have recurrent of what we call these pain crises. It did not say how many or how severe, um, at least from my research. I'm sure they'll be more specific yeah. at, at that point. Um, but but that's that that's where that's at. Um, I asked Dr. Jane if she expects to offer this at Rush in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, she said yes, and she certainly hopes to as soon as possible. Um, Rush, I guess, has a hemoglobinopathy program, mm-hmm. which is a fun word to say. Mm-hmm. Also has a bone marrow transplant program that's a recognized center of excellence. And so this would fit right in there, she said, in which they would start offering it as soon as it was available um, and certainly would be doing more research and making sure that the long-term outcomes were okay. Um, I think this is a mind-blowing, like, emoji kind of story, Julie. Like, I, like, yeah. send three mind-blowing emojis. Um, <laughs> this is going to have 
huge implications for other conditions. This is like what we dream of as doctors when we yeah. go into the field. We're like, we want to take a treat, a single treatment that people come in one time and cure a previously incurable disease that has significant morbidity and mortality. I mean, color me significantly jacked up about this. Absolutely. I am just so jacked. And I wrote down a few conditions that I could think about, but researchers are studying CRISPR-based therapies for conditions like muscular dystrophy, mm. diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, AIDS, heart disease, ALS. I mean, think yeah. about all these conditions that so many people experience and deal with and are told, this is what you have and we right. can't do anything about the condition. We can just treat the symptoms of it. Right. That you're going to die maybe- from this. Probably. Yeah. And is this a waterfall moment? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't do this research, but it kind of feels like it, right? Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's very exciting. And I'm glad to be. I'm sad that you had to sit on this story for so long because you were sick. <laughs> I'm so I sorry. I thought about just like uh, miming the whole thing when <laughs> I, I couldn't know. speak last week. But no, I was very excited for this story. Yeah. Do you have final reactions to this? Because I uh, seriously, I, if it hasn't come through the microphone, this is incredible. Yeah. I am following this story. I want to give follow-ups. I want to see what happens December 8th. Yep. I, 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 this is so cool. No, I second that emotion, Jeremy. Well, we, uh, we, we, we consumed the entree that was <laughs> I have some dessert. It's full not excitement. Ex- yeah. My dessert is not as exciting. My dessert's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Why do you always bring bummer desserts? <laughs> yeah, what would... Give me an example of a bummer dessert. If you're like, oh, hey, I came over to your house and you made dinner and I brought dessert, what would be a total bummer dessert? Like fruitcake? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a good example. I was going to say Trace Leche's cake. Trace Leche's is the best cake. What is wrong yeah. with you, sir? It's kind of like soggy. And no, just... that's the best part. Do you have a lactose intolerance? <laughs> no, I mean, I love me some lactose. <laughs> I, I take umbrage. Fun, fa- fun fact, I drank a glass of milk today and my son, my, fo- my four-year-old yeah. son looks at me and says, are you drinking milk? And I said, yes. And he goes, grownups don't drink milk. Oh. <laughs> Kids drink milk. So You're a big kid that. at heart, Jeremy. And your son is adorable. Um, All right, bring me the fruit the, the, the fruit tart of... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of an even lamer desserts. one. I don't know. I watch a lot of uh, Great British Bake Off, but they only make good stuff, so... All right. Um, okay, well, dessert... Um, the, the title of this article that I came across was... Oh, this is funny. This We don't call it dessert. This is leftover dessert. How about that? Oh, good. It's perfect <laughs> the, for post-Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> The title was Leftover Antibiotics, Major Barrier to Antimicrobial Stewardship. <laughs> so let's break that down. This is an article in Helio, and that was actually citing a quote from Dr. Jasal Shah. Um, he's a fellow in infectious diseases at Baylor College of Medicine. And he was referencing a survey in his research with a bunch of other people during ID Week. Have you heard of ID Week? No. It's basically... It's like a... Yeah, it's an annual meeting of several infectious disease and epidemiology associations and societies. We should ask Dr. Citrenberg if he goes. And actually, this this year it took place in Boston in mid-October, where um, I know uh, Dr. Citrenberg's from the East Coast, so I'll have to ask him if he went. You know, um, you can, like, buy, like, microbial like stuffed animals like yeah. you know, gram positive cocci, and you can buy, like... <laughs> this is like, Klebsiella, I feel like, yeah. I feel like... Back when I was in med school, I think I was gifted like MRSA. Oh, like, geez. It, but it was it was in like yeah, a stuffed like a animal. Plushy. I just imagine ID week people walking around with their favorite like bug like t shirt yeah. and, and, and yeah. hat. Oh god, are anything better than ID nerds? Uh, I just everybody loves infectious disease doctors now, or they hate them. I don't know, but 
I think they're beloved. Um, <laughs> so, so Dr. Shaw and his colleagues conducted a cross-sectional survey of 564 patients at six publicly funded primary care clinics and two privately funded emergency departments in the Houston area from January 2020 through uh, June 2021. And they were assessing the rates and reasons for stopping prescribed antibiotics and what was done with the leftover antibiotics with people, okay? Okay, so I was given antibiotics, yes. I was given 10 days, and I stopped sure. at day seven. Yes, exactly. Okay. So how many, what percentage do you think, in all of them, how many of their participants reported that they had stopped taking their prescribed antibiotics early? How many, what percentage? 60%. 45%. So a little less than half of people. Um, so among those people, among that little less than half, who stopped taking the antibiotics early, 77% had reported that it was, quote, because they felt better. Right. Which is a common, you know, reason why people would stop doing it. And then 18% reported that they forgot to finish all their antibiotics. Yep. Okay. Did anybody say side effects? Um, that was a big part of it, too, was people started having side effects. But but they also, and I, we can get down into this, but this is a dessert, so I won't go crazy into it. But some of them were side effects that you probably should have just continued the antibiotic anyway, sure. or like mild stomach upset or like a mild rash kind of thing. But, you know, that can be tricky. Um, and then... For those people who stopped their antibiotics early, so that little less than half, how many, what percentage do you think kept the leftovers? Oh, wow. A third. 74%. Oh, my goodness. Three quarters of them kept their leftover antibiotics. It's so interesting because, like, I have this image in my head of people being like, I kept it intentionally versus, like, I still think that is in the medicine cabinet. I didn't mean to keep it. I just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, I didn't want to throw it away. And, yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. So How do I dispose of these? Yeah, exactly. About half, 51% of these patients, the ones that kept, said they intended to use them regardless of their healthcare provider's advice. They just said, I'll probably get to use them in the future if I want to. Um, And then... 26% 26% of those people reported they had previously used leftover antibiotics in the past. Like that they had like, oh, I have a cold mm-hmm. and I'm going to take my, you know, old penicillin that's been in my cupboard for a year or something. So researchers then conducted in-depth interviews to identify why people were doing this. What are people's motivations as to why they would use antibiotics without a prescription? Um, so this is like using them leftovers from a prior prescribed course or obtaining them from like social networks or getting them over the counter from a different country or like illegally somehow, I guess. I don't know how you get a legal, like, I don't know, black, buy black market or something. Yeah, right. Pay with crypto. And, um, and these people were, uh, reporting using the antibiotics for a lot of different things. They're using them for symptoms of COVID-19 the flu and the common cold, as well as for pain management and allergies and even just like wounds. Um, So they use antibiotics to treat symptoms that they previously had or because they believe that they understood their illnesses enough and and which medications that they should be using. So like when they asked them, they were like, well, I've had this before and this is what I took. So I'm just going to take it again. And why do you think people do this? Why do you think people give me some reasons in your mind why why people would take leftover antibiotics? I think ultimately I w- I was interested I was going to ask you was there ages on this study like the average age of person in this study? Yes, but I yeah, I'd have to go and reference it. Do you remember if it was young or old? I think it was <laughs> mid-aged people. Mid. Yeah. Okay. Because so I feel very strongly that People want to feel better yesterday from colds and from, I mean, we all do. Mm -hmm. Ask me last week when I wanted to record this episode. Yes. And the natural feeling going back 
gener- uh, you know, a generation or two was antibiotics made the symptoms go away. Yep. And I think what we have learned over the time is that the vast majority of times antibiotics were prescribed, it was right when symptoms get better. Right. Um, like day seven of a virus is when people start to feel better from a virus. Mm-hmm. And that's right when the antibiotic was started. And you're like, oh, the antibiotic made me feel better. Right. So to answer your question directly, people take the antibiotics because they associate the antibiotic with the symptoms getting better. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that was reflected in the results of this survey. Some patients use antibiotics as an alternative to over-the-counter medications that they perceived as ineffective. You know, so like, I want to take this antibiotic because my mucinex doesn't seem to be working. And it's really like, well, it was working fine and you were just getting better anyway. But sure, you're exactly right. You started taking the antibiotic at the turning point that you were probably going to improve from your viral upper respiratory infection. Um, the, the one thing that really stuck with me was that one participant, and this actually spurred a whole other different little article, which I'll link in the, in the show notes. One participant described antibiotics as being, quote, like gold, oh. indicating that they should be kept on hand because getting a prescription from their doctor is challenging, but antibiotic... Uh, an antibiotic will effectively treat all kinds of infections. So, you know, they people were talking about um, barriers to healthcare and treatment access, including long wait times to schedule appointments and to see the doctor while at their appointments, and then struggling with getting transportation to appointments, paying for parking, and affording the associated costs of doctor visits. So many patients opted to use a non-prescription antibiotic because they're more convenient than visiting a clinician and are easier to obtain and afford. Yeah, this is one of those like yes, yes, and yes. like th- like they're both yeses, uh-huh. and this is a classic YDF like a, a your doctor friend moment where I agree with everything like that. Yep. Access is hard, and I don't want to have to try to go in. If I go in, they may not even give me what I was looking for in the first place. Right. It's all true. Mm-hmm. The, the the issue here is that unlike other types of medications, antibiotics, what we've learned over the years, are not benign, that they affect your microbiome, they can Mm -hmm. lead to significant side effects, they can lead to the antimicrobial um, resistance in the future, where if you take it, it doesn't work in the future. And we've also learned that the vast, 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 capital VAST uh, of these are viral, and that the antibiotic is doing absolutely nothing for it. And I do feel that I have seen as a physician that the younger generations have been not only not asking for them, but like not wanting antibiotics. So that's why I asked about the age in your study, because mm-hmm. I have found that, that generally speaking, younger people do not want them because this has been hammered into us so much that the antibiotics yeah. have consequences. Yeah. Um, but I do understand the concept of if I get to six or seven days, I just really don't want to call my doctor and, and get access to it. I mean, this is why like for hymns.com exists to go mm-hmm. get like ED pills because you just don't want to have to call the doctor and make an appointment. You're yeah. just like, I'm having a problem and I'd like to have what I think needs to be treated. Yeah. I have a structured settlement and I need cash now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. So I'm going to end with this quote. It's basically saying exactly what you just said. So it was by Lindsay uh, uh, Leitner. Um, she's a PhD and an MPH. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Baylor, um, and she was involved in this research as well. She said, improper use of antibiotics contributes to the growing threat of antimicrobial resistance, exactly what you just said. Um, and so clinicians, pharmacists, and community leaders must establish education efforts on safe antibiotic use and provide alternative treatment options for everyday symptoms and work to improve access to healthcare and related services. So... 
I agree with all that. Agreed. I, 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 get, we get, I get requests all the time for this sort of thing. You know, I have my go-to. We've, we have our cold medicine uh, episode all the way back with Greg Sestelli. But, you know, mm-hmm. I have my go-to for the specific – got to treat the symptom, right? Yeah. So if somebody's congested pseudoephedrine, don't get phenylephrine. It's a piece of shit. And, it, <laughs> it does, and the FDA agrees now. Yes. Right? And if you're having a cough, you can use dextromethorphan. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there's different medications. But maybe this is also a sign that we should be doing more research into better symptom-based treatments for these viral illnesses. We should be coming out with even more symptom-based treatments right. instead of uh, uh, the ones we currently have because people don't feel like they help and they don't feel like they make them yeah. Or at better. least just more and more education that we are not in Amazon Prime world all the time when it comes to our bodies. That you just sometimes you just need time and rest and it just takes that long. Um, and and what to look for when it is taking a little bit too long and when should you reach out and and that's difficult and it's. It's certainly, we're right in the season of that right now. I don't know how much you're seeing that in your own uh, oh, your totally. own clinic, but really with taking care of our athletes, I feel like that's where I'm seeing a lot of it is or, like, oh, I feel bad. Or taking care of your doctor friends, you know, who were <laughs> sick last, last week. The, Absolutely. The, the, I find that the statement, this can tributes to antimicrobial resistance falls on deaf ears. It I think it's kind of like don't care. people don't give a shit. That's a that's like, a tomorrow's what? problem and it's like yeah, yeah but right. it's already here and it's a it is a major problem and It is for sure and I don't right. want to de-emphasize it on Agreed. this podcast, but I don't think that that resonates with no. people. So I think saying it makes you not connect with the people who are I trying know. to save these antibiotics. I know. I find and I think where I think a lot of my time and energy will go into is learning more about how it affects the microbiome. Yeah. And I think because I think a lot of people are into that concept sure. and I think it does play a huge role in our health and maybe why we get illnesses more frequently in the future. I think if you take antibiotics and you have a worse microbiome, you may be at risk for f- other things in the future. Yeah, agreed. So, And I think that would resonate and that's where I'm going to spend a lot of my time. And yeah. if you're listening right now, you don't screw up your microbiome by taking antibiotics you don't need. Yeah. How can we effectively scare people, Jeremy? We're running out of ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know how to not scare people. Um we can turn your bananas into bialys with this amazing <laughs> with this amazing new crispr technology and i think that's amazing so it's i'm glad to uh, to be a cheerleader for um, for gene therapy and hopefully to have more and more discussions about it so you maybe just continue to listen to your doctor friends totally crisping <laughs> bialys <laughs> the crispier the better <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.